I do think God has a sense of humor, especially in terms of timing, that on the Sunday where we have celebrated the sacrament of baptism amid this crazy pandemic, we have received this wonderful text about baptism from Peter. And it's creedal, it's liturgical, I hope you picked up on that, that baptism does so much more than remove dirt from the body, but it is an appeal to the conscience. It's through the resurrection of Christ who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, all who were made subject to him. That is a wonderful liturgical statement. And all of that from a little bit of water, you better believe it. A few sprinkles of ordinary water with a heavenly dose of extraordinary grace, it seals us as God's beloved children. Do you think about your baptism very often? Do you remember your baptism? Do you relive it each time we celebrate baptism here? You know, in this text, we, we do not get rules about baptism, especially regarding one's age or how much water should be used, but we sure do receive a rich theology that speaks of baptism being prefigured by the waters of flood. And just as certain as the flood waters can destroy through their power, so too do the waters of baptism that we just placed on Ava Joe's head have power not only to remove dirt, it's more than ritual cleansing. That's the tradition from which Peter was drawing. It can do more than clean your hands to get rid of a virus on your hands. But it has the power to bring together an entire community of faith. Eternal power, cosmic power, resurrection power. Baptism, your baptism, reminds us that before anything else we will ever face in this life that God loves us, before we are able to rationalize Christ, talk ourselves into believing Christ or loving Christ or choosing Christ, that Jesus Christ has already chosen to love us. Before we are even able to articulate a defense for Christ, Christ has already defended us. And there is no force on this planet, no angel, authority, or power who can ever change that truth that you are loved by God that you have been loved by God before there ever was a world or before you ever were even a part of it. God's love came first in this world through word, through a breath. And that love, it's unaffected. It's uninfected by COVID. It's unaffected by whether or not we choose God. You, you might not feel it. You may reject it. We all ignore it. We question it. We explore it. But despite our response... God still loves us. And the promise made at our baptism is it's never broken by Christ, no matter how often we turn our backs on our baptism. Scripture tells us there is one faith, there is one Lord, there is one baptism. And this reality, in my mind, is where life really begins. It's certainly where it begins to be interesting through new birth by water and the Spirit, if we are wise, we will reorient every aspect of life to the truth that there's nothing one may do to change how much one is loved by God. You cannot do anything to make God love you any more than you are already loved. And you cannot do anything to make God love you less. You are perfectly and fully whole, whole and loved by God as you are. This truth, it sets us apart from 
every other kingdom that we create for ourselves, every other little kingdom that we try to control, because we become citizens of God's kingdom. And so today, Ava Joe and Peter, 2,000 years removed from one another, they've reminded us of God's love through Jesus Christ and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Every single person who has witnessed Ava Joe's baptism just now ought to have clear eyes and full hearts with joy. Because baptisms and professions of faith and bringing people into the family of God here at First United Methodist Church are the most important things that we do. And as someone wrote, in a world where baptism can become an ecclesiastical equivalent, equivalent of a baby shower, an infant baptism, or getting one's driver's license for teenagers who were baptized later, Peter calls us to the sacredness of the moment, this mixture of the mystery of faith and the mystery of Christ that gives us more assurance than anything else we hold certain in this world. And all of this comes on the heels of something else that Peter mentions in today's reading, because he's writing to a group of Christians who were hunkered down, quarantined, oppressed by the virus of imperialism. And Peter says, do not be afraid of those who want to hurt you. In fact, don't even get upset about it. <laughs> Smile, <laughs> but don't forget your baptism. And what this letter is, is a message of nonviolence and non-retaliation in the face of extreme suffering. Because in the first century, there was a sequence of rulers, Claudius, Nero, Domitian, Trajan, others all the way into the middle of the third century and beyond who were persecuting Christians in the most horrific ways. All because they said, Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. It's a bold confession. Can we make that statement? Assertively, Christians, if they made that statement, would be impaled, creosoted, ignited as lampposts along the Roman roadways. They would be fed to tigers and lions in the Colosseum. They were covered with skins of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs. They were beheaded, skinned alive like Brother St. Bartholomew over here and other apostles holding their means of martyrdom in their hands. And so it's into that reality, into that oppression, that Peter writes something in the opening part of this letter that is countercultural. It's an alternative narrative. He speaks in the first part of this letter about new birth and inheritance and your faith being more genuine and authentic than the gold that you have in front of you, that you should rejoice in this kind of hope. And although you've never seen Jesus, you love him, and we know that he's coming back. And, and to us, lifelong Christian church folks, those words, we get it. There will be trials, but Jesus wins. Hallelujah. That's, that's our message. But if we put on the, hear this text as Rome would have heard it, that's a declaration of revolt, an uprising, a coup, to say that you have an inheritance and Rome doesn't provide everything that you need or that you're guarded by God's power, not the Pax Romana, or that salvation comes from this one who is not here but is coming. That's a threat. It's mutiny. Or that your faith is more valuable than the gold even in your pocket with that cute little Roman picture on it. So Peter naturally says, right, don't be afraid. 
this movement's going to start and Rome's going to get really upset about it and we're going to suffer and the ground beneath your feet will shake and you will be run out of public and into your homes and you'll want to lose all hope but cling tightly to the core values within you. Do not be intimidated. Preach hope. It's into that reality that Peter says, be unshakable in a shaky world. Remember your core and, and dig deep in moments when life doesn't make sense. This past week, Bishop Graves made a very difficult decision to allow determinations about reopening churches to reside with United Methodist ministers in their local churches and in their community. And I, I want to implore you to pray for Bishop Graves during these times. I pray for him every morning when my feet hit the ground and before I go to sleep, I pray for Bishop David Graves. And I pray that you'll do the same. He's leading us with excellence and with a pastor's heart. There is apparently a tension between what the economists are saying and what the scientists are saying. And when you throw politics and religion and college football into the mix, everyone has an opinion about how things should reopen, right? And when. What our culture thrives on, friends, is called dualistic thinking. And if you haven't found Father Richard Rohr's work on that, I, I encourage you to do that. We thrive on, we build our culture, our society, our lives on an us and them mentality. And an, unless one is an us, one must be a them. And that can be so divisive and, and hurtful and labeling, as we've decided, to pin science and medicine and politics and technology and faith against one another. And so with this virus, we have people ascribing to the science of pandemic, the suspicion of plandemic, or the economy of scandemic, and who knows what else. Now, I'm sure that this wouldn't happen in, in our church, but I've heard from friends in their churches how their brothers and sisters are beating up on one another in social media about plandemic and pandemic and scandemic and the politics and the religion and the science and all of that and the church just cannibalizes itself. It shakes when we're supposed to be unshakable. So I wonder if these ancient words from Peter offer Christians a different way. Like Jesus' own words, this via media from which our own Wesleyan tradition comes from Queen Elizabeth I, it's that middle way forward to offer a defense for the hope that is within us that says all of the things shaking and rattling around us will not last. This period of isolation and illness and stress and strain on our hospitals and on our economy and on our laboratories, these will not last. All of this suffering just will not hold out. So do not be impaled or torn by the prevailing kingdoms of this world because there's a hope inside of you that this world needs now more than ever. Because when the periphery shakes, the church is called to awake. Always, always be ready, says verse 15. I hope you mark that and highlight it, underline it. Always be ready to give a defense, an account, an apology in the classical sense of apologetics, always be willing to give a defense for the hope that is within you 
but do so with gentleness and with reverence. Social media needs some gentleness and reverence for people who are having to make extremely difficult decisions about reopening communion, uh, communities and churches and restaurants and businesses. Make your defense one of hope, but don't be offensive about it. The gospel in this letter of Peter does not say sometimes be ready or occasionally be ready or when you get your theology all in check or when it's convenient to be ready or when the scheduling works out. Nope. Always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you. And so we have today the permission of the good book and you have the permission of your pastor to be an alternative narrative right now because so much is shaking this community and, and our world to its core. People need hope. People don't know what to believe or, or how to believe or how to even help this country heal and find restoration in various communities, even our own. So people search for answers. And the church has always been the response for difficult times such as these. It's a message that should come from the depths of our soul across our lips and into the lives of people who are searching for answers. And that message is simple, that pain and suffering and shakiness they do not match up to the unshakable truth that Jesus Christ has overcome all things, that, that we're not even home yet, that we're sojourners traveling through this life as God's emissaries to bring some cheer and some joy and some hope as a reminder that right now God is in the process working with the church and the spirits to make all things new. So believe that and defend that and proclaim that we need communities to see Ava Joe leading us forward with the, sure, the assurance that long before COVID-19 and long after, she is loved and claimed by God. And friends, you are too. A lot of times when people uh, are asked why they are a Christian, you know, they offer that defense. People say, I was reared in the Christian faith. I believe the Bible or Jesus changed my story, or I had a personal experience. It falls into one of those categories, but again, we say you got to have one or the other, and honestly, my life, my own case for Christ, my own apologetic is all of those at any given moment of, of my life. So what's your story? What's your experience? On what foundation do you stand for your defense? But no matter how much this world shakes, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Adam Hamilton has three questions that have been very helpful to my ministry over the years. He asks them oftentimes of his staff and of his members, and then he has given those questions to other churches to ask of themselves. They've been very helpful. And those are, why do people need Jesus? Why do people need the church? And why do people need this church? Why do people need Jesus? Why do people need the church? And why do people need this church? I hope you can answer that. My answers are this. People need Jesus because through him we have access to God. We get to play a part in God's ongoing love story with humanity. We have a place at the table with God's family. We gain admission into eternal life, but it begins right here and right now with the hope that the worst things are never, ever the last things that Christ has overcome this world and is partnering with us to make all things new. Why do people need the church? Well, everyone that I have met is longing for a place to belong. The church becomes a great 
mission. It's, it's a mission that's greater than ourselves. We get to step into something larger than ourselves. I love that our narthex is so tight and so small. And as you're writing down your, your in-person goals, when you come back to worship, write this down. Make note of how small the narthex is. Because it reminds us of how small we feel as we enter into the presence of God. But holy moly, we open up into this glorious space, this story that is so much bigger than any one of us. We need community to hold us accountable, to call us out, to pick us up, to scold us, to encourage us. God's word itself is meant to be read in community. It was written for community and by the community to be given to the community of faith. We need corporate worship. We need a collective belief. We, we need that one common loaf and that one cup because we are one body. Several years ago, the Hargrove family came to me their son Thomas was going through the confirmation, and, and Prather Ann, who is now one of our graduating seniors, she was in fifth or sixth grade. Alan and Jody uh, wanted to have a family service for their family to take their first communion together. And I was so honored and humbled to be asked. Uh, Alan and Jody, uh, as you know, are exceptional parents, and they really understood uh, that discipleship begins in the home. So several weeks, they went through great lengths to talk to their children about the elements, and they had done this their whole life, you know, about communion and worship. Uh, what do these elements mean, what the liturgy means, the sacrifice that Christ has made, the mystery uh, of it all. And so we gathered uh, one afternoon over here in the chapel, in Duffy Chapel, and family and extended family were there for this special day, and I said a few gathering words, introductory words, and then I went into the liturgy, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you, lift up your hearts, on the night in which he took bread, uh, was betrayed, he took bread, and I went through the epiclesis and blessed the elements, and I took it and I broke it, and I gave Alan and Jody and Thomas and P.A. and, and their families some bread, and then I came back by and, uh, and gave them the chalice, offered the chalice to them, and they had their first communion. And those children were so wide-eyed and exuberant about this experience because so much about their entire life story had had built up to this very moment. They were finally able to share uh, in this sacrament of Holy Communion. Well, I thought all was said and done, right? So I wiped away the tears, and I was preparing to put the elements away in keeping with our tradition. And I'll never forget at that very moment that very young Prather Ann, she was heading out, and I was heading out. She turned around, she came running back over to me, and she blurted out, Pastor Jay, Thank you for serving me my very first community. She turned really red. And she said, I mean my first communion. And I said, no, no, no. You got it right the first time, kiddo. This meal gives us our community. And I told her, I said, don't you ever, ever forget this day. And so on my first Sunday back here as a senior minister, she was walking out the door and she said, do you remember my community story? I said, P.A., how could I ever forget that story? It's shaped my entire understanding. 12-year-old shaped my entire understanding. Ava Jo shapes my entire defense for what I believe about Jesus Christ, what I believe about community. Finally, why do people need this church why do people need this church? There's not enough time for me to answer this question in the way that I would like to do, but the short version is this, because transformation happens here. Lives are changed for Jesus Christ right here in this sacred space 
and in these hallways and in our programming and in our classrooms. People hear God's call at this church. People are given second chances and third chances at this church. You can be yourself at this church. You will be loved at this church. At this church, we can make a deep impact in Montgomery and in our zip codes, as well as on the other side of the planet. And we can send students into seminary. We can send missionaries into foreign countries. We work hard to help end hunger. And we're not afraid to help solve big problems, but we'll also listen to someone's story one-on-one. So I believe people need this church because after 190 years together, we're just getting warmed up to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This past week, with everything else that was going on related to the oddity of receiving an online doctoral conferral on the same day that our state reopened, combined with meetings with our reintegration team and our school board and our worship team and our program directors and so many others trying to figure out how to reopen the campus. And now with a few of our own people in the hospitals and facing diagnoses with the virus, it would have been easy to miss something truly special that happened in the lives of two of our young adult students who I'll uh, leave unnamed. But isn't it ironic that on a Sunday when we're discussing the topic of having an unshakable defense that two of our former youth, now college students, they called me out of the blue and asked me to help them with a theological intervention. Both of these students have friends who were on the periphery of Christianity or didn't really have an experience with the church, but are starting to ask questions. And and our students, the ones whom just 18, 19, 20 years ago were right here like, like Ava Jo, the ones around who we placed our arms and made these vows to walk with them. They were coming back to the church asking how to share their faith in an authentic way, like I suspect David Joe will do in a few years. I'm so proud of these students for circling back to their church to say, hey, listen, Pastor Jay, I've I've been asked these questions and I want to make sure that, that I'm on the right track. And as they were telling me this, in the back of my mind, I'm hearing 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and reverence, do it with a sense of authenticity. These students taught me this week that if we're doing Christianity correctly, then our friends and our relatives, our acquaintances, our neighbors, our enemies, they'll sense something different about us. Because Christianity is better caught than taught, as you've heard. And I believe it begins with baptism, where we discover the hope on which our entire understanding of God's kingdom is built.